Welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I'm a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. I'm a little late in posting the episode this week because I have just returned from a sort of whirlwind trip to Paris for a conference on Cold War women's rights, and then a very quick dash to Sofia, Bulgaria, as well as a little village in the northeast of Bulgaria called Lutibrod, where I was visiting some friends and basically talking to people about the state of women's rights before and after the fall of communism in 1989. So I have a lot of really interesting insights on sort of what's going on in this part of the world. And I'm actually really excited to announce that Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism is actually going into eight foreign editions because there's been so much international interest in the book. And I'm especially proud that the book is being translated into Russian, Polish, Czech, Slovak, as well as German. And there will also be a Dutch and a Spanish edition as well as the UK edition, which came out last fall and which has just gone into paperback in the UK. So there's been a lot of really interesting discussion about the status of women's rights under socialism and what happened to the status of women and women's rights after 1989 or 1991. And of course, if you've been listening to this podcast so far, you know that many of the gains that women in Eastern Europe, and I would argue obviously not only Eastern Europe, but also Western Europe and perhaps even the entire world, many of the gains that women made were in some ways the direct result of the theories and works of somebody named Alexandra Kolontai. So I am going to read a further selection from this very foundational text that Alexandra Kolontai wrote, The Social Basis of the Women's Question. This is part three of that essay. So if you haven't listened to the first two episodes in this series, please go back and make sure that you listen to that earlier part of the essay. Today I'm going to be reading from a section of the essay called Marriage and the Problems of the Family. But before I read this section, I sort of feel like I have to address the sort of elephant in the room when we talk about Alexandra Kolontai, and that is her views on prostitution. And here I just want to say that I know that sex work is the politically correct term, but in this podcast and in future podcasts, I am going to use the word prostitution because that is the word that Kolontai uses over and over again in her essays. Uh, I've seen certain things on the internet. I've had people talk to me about her views on prostitution. And obviously, from our vantage point in 2019, some of the things that she says can be taken out of context, and it can make it seem that she's very opposed to sex work. Now, that's partially true. But what I think her contemporary critics don't understand is that Alexandra Kolontai is really opposed to any form of relationship where women are selling themselves to men in any way. And so what's really important as I read this next section is for you to pay attention to the ways in which Alexandra Kolontai actually considers dependent wives. She actually considers marriage and and wifedom to be the moral equivalent of being a prostitute or of selling yourself to a man for just a night rather than for the rest of your life. 
And so when people criticize Colin Tai for her views on prostitution, which are, I think you can certainly, if you read some of the sections of her essays out of context, can sound as if she's very, very anti-sex work. But she's anti the commodification of love in any way, including the commodification of women's care work and love and sexuality in the institution of marriage. So she's not a hypocrite here. She's basically saying that all women who enter into any form of relationship with a man where their attention or affection or sexuality is being commodified in some way is doing something that is antithetical to socialism, to the ideals of love that socialism hopes to uphold. And when I get deeper into this podcast, I will read an essay that's specifically about prostitution, and I'll talk a little bit more about the context within which Alexandra Kollontai was writing. And I think it's really important to remember that, you know, people in 1917, especially young women, peasant women in 1917 in Russia or girls working in the factory, sex work really wasn't a kind of form of empowerment for them. It was usually something that they did because they were absolutely desperate and they turned to it not out of a sense of agency over their lives, but out of a sense of having to make ends meet. I think the situation in pre-revolutionary and certainly in immediately post-revolutionary Russia is very different for women and especially for sex workers than it is in the United States or in Western Europe in 2019. And we shouldn't be anachronistic and expect somebody who's writing in the early part of the 20th century to fully understand our 21st century values and ideas around things like sex work. So again, as I read this section of the essay, I want you to pay attention to the ways in which Kollontai condemns both what she thinks of as bourgeois monogamous marriage and the ways in which women are sort of indentured to their husbands and the equivalence that she makes with that institution to the institution of prostitution. So it's, it's a key distinction and it's a key insight that helps you understand why Kollontai later becomes so critical of prostitution. And I, I think it's worth pointing out as well that even though she is quite critical of the society that creates the need for women to sell themselves either into marriage or into some form of sex work, that Kollontai is actually single-handedly responsible for not persecuting prostitutes in the Soviet Union. There is no law that is passed in the Soviet Union to bring criminal charges against prostitutes, especially in the very early era of the Soviet Union, because she doesn't believe in punishing women for doing things that they have to do in order to survive because the society has not supported them in the way that it should be supporting them. Kolontai is really interested in reforming society completely. And so as far as she's concerned, the abolition of marriage, the institution of bourgeois monogamous marriage, will also result in the abolition of prostitution. Basically, if you've been listening to this podcast so far, you know that for Kolontai, the ideal is a society where love is completely untethered from economic considerations, whether that be in marriage or informally in the form of sex work. So this is the section of the essay called Marriage and the Problem of the Family. I'm just going to read a bit of it today and then in the next episode I'll continue. Let us turn our attention to another aspect of the woman question, the question of the family. The importance that the solution of this urgent and complex question has for the genuine emancipation of women is well known. 
the struggle for political rights, for the right to receive doctorates and other academic degrees, and for equal pay for equal work is not the full sum of the fight for equality. To become really free, women has to throw off the heavy chains of the current forms of the family, which are outmoded and oppressive. For women, the solution of the family question is no less important than the achievement of political equality and economic independence. In the family of today, the structure of which is confirmed by custom and law, woman is oppressed not only as a person, but as a wife and mother. In most of the countries of the civilized world, the civil code places woman in a greater or lesser dependence on her husband and awards the husband not only the right to dispose of her property, but also the right of moral and physical dominance over her. Where the official and legal servitude of women ends, the force we call public opinion begins. This public opinion is created and supported by the bourgeoisie with the aim of preserving the sacred institution of property. The hypocrisy of double morality is another weapon. Bourgeois society crushes woman with its savage economic vice, paying for her labor at a very low rate. The woman is deprived of the citizen's right to raise her voice in defense of her interest. Instead, she is given only the gracious alternative of the bondage of marriage or the embraces of prostitution, a trade despised and persecuted in public, but encouraged and supported in secret. Is it necessary to emphasize the dark sides of contemporary married life and the sufferings women experience in connection with their position in the present family structure? So much has already been written and said on the subject. Literature is full of depressing pictures of the snares of married and family life. How many psychological dramas are enacted? How many lives are crippled? Here, it is only important for us to note that the modern family structure, to a lesser or greater extent, oppresses women of all classes and all layers of the population. Customs and traditions persecute the young mother, whatever the stratum of the population to which she belongs. The laws place bourgeois women, proletariat women, and peasant women all under the guardianship of their husbands. Have we not discovered at last that aspect of the woman question over which women of all classes can unite? Can they not struggle jointly against the conditions oppressing them? Is it not possible that the grief and suffering which women share in this instance will soften the claws of class antagonism and provide common aspirations and common action for the women of the different camps? Might it not be that on the basis of common desires and aims, cooperation between the bourgeois women and the proletarian women may become a possibility? The feminists are struggling for freer forms of marriage and for the right to maternity. They are raising their voices in defense of the prostitute, the human being persecuted by all. See how rich feminist literature is in the search for new forms of relationships and in enthusiastic demands for the moral equality of the sexes. Is it not true that while in the sphere of economic liberation, the bourgeois women lag behind the many million strong army of proletarian women who are pioneering the way for the new woman, in the fight for the solution of the family question, the laurels go to the feminists? Here in Russia, women of the middle bourgeoisie, that army of independent wage earners thrown onto the labor market during the 1860s, have long since settled in practice many of the confused aspects of the marriage question. They have courageously replaced the consolidated family of the traditional church marriage with more elastic types of relationship that meet the needs of that social layer. But the subjective solution of this question by individual women does not change the situation and does not relieve the overall gloomy picture of family life. 
If any force is destroying the modern form of the family, it is not the titanic efforts of separate and stronger individuals, but the inanimate and mighty forces of production, which are uncompromisingly building life on new foundations. The heroic struggle of individual women of the bourgeois world who fling down the gauntlet and demand of society the right to dare to love without orders and without chains ought to serve as an example for all women languishing in family chains. This is what is preached by the more emancipated feminists abroad and our progressive equal writers at home. The marriage question, in other words, is solved in their view without reference to the external situation. It is solved independently of changes in the economic structure of society. The isolated heroic efforts of individuals is enough, but less heroic women shake their heads in distrust. It is all very well for the heroines of novels blessed by the prudent author with great independence, unselfish friends, and extraordinary qualities of charm to throw down the gauntlet. But what of those who have no capital, insufficient wages, no friends, and little charm? And the question of maternity preys on the mind of the woman who strives for freedom. Is free love possible? Can it be realized as a common phenomenon, as the generally accepted norm, rather than the individual exception, given the economic structure of our society? Is it possible to ignore the element of private property in contemporary marriage? Is it possible in an individualistic world to ignore the formal marriage contract without damaging the interests of women? For the marital contract is the only guarantee that all the difficulties of maternity will not fall on the woman alone. Will not that which once happened to the male worker now happen to the woman? The removal of guild regulations without the establishment of new rules governing the conduct of the masters gave capital absolute power over the workers. The tempting slogan, freedom of contract for labor and capital, became a means for the naked exploitation of labor by capital. Free love, introduced consistently into contemporary class society, instead of freeing women from the hardships of family life, would surely shoulder her with a new burden, the task of caring, alone and unaided, for her children. I'm going to stop reading right there and just point out, actually, something else that I think is really important, which is that Kolontai is very often represented as a kind of libertine, as somebody who advocates free love. But what you can see in the section of the essay that I just read, in fact, is that she's not advocating free love. She's actually saying that the complete abolition of the marriage contract without fundamental changes in the larger structure of society and particularly in the relations of production is actually going to be worse for women. And in a similar way, as we will see in later essays, Kolontai very clearly believes that just legalizing prostitution or just liberating sexuality or abolishing marriage is not the answer to women's emancipation without fundamental restructuring of the economy. And basically, at the end of the day, what Kolontai argues is that only under a fully socialist society where the means of production are collectively owned are women going to be truly free. This shouldn't be a newsflash to anybody since Kolontai is clearly a socialist, but I think that it's very easy to misread Kolontai if you're just focusing very narrowly on her opinions about prostitution and free love. Because if you read them, what you what it can look like is she's opposed to sex work and she's opposed to some sort of unlimited sexual freedoms, which she is only because 
in the existing world that she sees in Russia at the time that she's writing this essay, which is in the early 20th century, the social and economic structures are such that any kind of liberalization of sexuality is going to be of great detriment to women. So that's it for this week. This is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. Please like, share, review, do what it is that you do to love your podcasts and keep up the good fight. Thanks so much for listening. Something is going to be void this year.